The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Welcome to Season 2 of Students of Mind, the podcast where we aim to normalize conversations about mental health. Last season, we connected you with experts in the field of mental health to provide an understanding of topics and illnesses that may not have been easily accessible. This season, we will continue our learning journey together by not only speaking to experts, but also by listening to the voices and stories of real people who are living, surviving, and even thriving while also facing challenges with their mental health in their everyday life. This season, we want to hear your stories to get the full truth of what it's like to manage one's mental health and navigate living with mental illness. I'm your host, Jade, and today we are continuing the discussion around psychiatric medications. Today, Dr. Kimberly Gordon Achebe will talk about racism in psychiatry and the work being done on both the community and structural level to have more cultural competency. In the second part of today's episode, my partner Zen will be interviewing me so I can share with you all some of my own experiences with receiving psychiatric care and being on medication. I hope by listening to the show, you're able to learn something new and gain some encouragement through hearing our experts and listening to the journeys of our guests. However, this show is not a substitute for professional advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have about your condition. Never disregard professional advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on the Students of Mind podcast. Today's first guest is Dr. Kimberly Gordon Achebe. Dr. Kim is a double board certified psychiatrist and health equity speaker and consultant. Dr. Kim's work centers around bringing health equity to communities of color, and she has conducted many educational trainings on mental health disparities and inequalities for women, children, and Black and Indigenous people of color, cultural competency, and the racial implicit biases that exist in medical decision-making. Good afternoon. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you, Jay, for asking me to come and speak to you guys today. Yeah, of course. I'm excited for this conversation. I've 
been wanting to have a conversation like this for a while, so I'm really excited. So before we get into the topic of today, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do? Yes, I'm uh, delighted to tell you more about myself. So just start off, I am uh, a child psychiatrist, child and adolescent psychiatrist. I practice in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, currently, I'm affiliated with two academic institutions, including University of Maryland uh, in Baltimore, but also Tulane University in New Orleans. Uh, I act as assistant professor in both child divisions. Uh, and I'm also uh, really affiliated with the American Psychiatric Association through the Caucus of Black Psychiatrists, uh, former president of the Caucus of Black Psychiatrists, in addition to various roles and committees that uh, I belong to. Uh, but overall, you know, I am a child psychiatrist and a community psychiatrist who works uh, in an assertive uh, community treatment program. We call it pro uh, Programs for Assertive Community Treatment, uh, which works with people with severe mental illness, both uh, children and adolescents, but also adults. I head the child division for uh, University of Maryland and doing work there. I'm also CEO for a, um, a company, a health equity company. Uh, that provides educational resources, mentorship. If you're a medical student, you're interested in mentorship, uh, look me up. And also uh, provides trainings and curriculums for cultural psychiatry and uh, really helping us understand more about the BIPOC communities and their uh, experience with mental health. Great. Thank you. So I'm doing a small series about psychiatric meds and psychiatry because there's so much debate in the mental health field about the use of meds, um, the field of psychiatry, and I just wanted to get as many perspectives on this topic as possible. And I know, especially being a Black person, our relationship with mental health in general, there's a lot of stigma, but especially when it comes to taking medication. Um, before we get into talking about like the, the experience of being Black and going to a psychiatrist, can you tell us about your journey into becoming a psychiatrist and what it's like being a Black woman in this field? So yeah, before I get started, you know, Jade, I have to say that it takes a lot of courage as a Black woman uh, to have a conversation about what that experience is like in, in mental health care as a BIPOC person. Uh, so thank you for giving me an opportunity to tell a little bit about myself and how I actually became a psychiatrist. And it's interesting that you talked about stigma kind of starting off in the stigma of medications uh, and also the stigma of actually having a psychiatric illness. Uh, I remember vividly when I really came to understand that there were certain behaviors, certain things that I was experiencing as a young person that I didn't completely understand. So I grew up in the Bible Belt. Like, you know, I was born and raised in Louisiana. And so being in the South, in the Deep South, there was a really big appreciation for church. And that was a source of support for many African-Americans who had all types of traumas or experiences with racism and other things, uh, poverty and that sort of thing. And so I knew very early uh, as a young person that, you know, the pastor would be able to, for the most part, support a lot of things. But when someone came in with a mental illness, it was a very different feel. People felt nervous and uh, the pastor even act different. I remember going to a tent revival as a young person and seeing uh, the pastor lay hands on like, I don't know if you've ever seen that, but the pastor laid hands on everyone. 
But that schizophrenic who came in, the pastor didn't feel comfortable with that person laying hands. It was actually some taboo. And so I remember thinking like, you know, what is the connection between mental health and spiritual, you know, people's spiritual life, you know, and I, and that was, I guess, the impetus for me to really become fascinated with how can we help people uh, who are ostracized, even in their own community, even in their faith community, uh, because of their struggles. Yeah, I, I think talking about uh, faith and, and religion for Black people is really important because that's something that we've used for centuries as our our, our therapy, our, our way of grounding ourselves. And, and I think that it's one of the more like difficult topics um, to kind of like undo the beliefs that exist in religion about mental health. And so to keep going, you do a lot of work around racism and how it shows up in psychiatry. So can you talk a little bit about the ways that racism has shown up in psychiatry just through time and how that's changed today? Well, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to what we were kind of talking about before in communities of how people actually access resources. One of the things that I think is challenging when we talk about racism and psychiatry is that we have to understand that, you know, every societal institution structure uh, in the way it was structured and designed uh, had racism embedded into it. And so, you know, medicine and psychiatry is a noble profession. You know, people go into medicine because they're interested in helping people and not just their people, but everyone. Uh, we take oaths of how we can do that. You know, we do extensive studying and our training to understand different cultures, understand different ways people um, seek help. Uh, but there has been a history, you know, stemming research, for instance, for African-Americans to understand like what sort of resources that African-Americans have in their community that is help is, that builds resiliency, that builds, you know, understanding about how they uh, manage their healthcare needs. You know, there has been uh, a lack of African-American doctors in uh, medicine. You know, I represent about 2% or 3% of doctors and then being a child psychiatrist too, I'm a unicorn. Like there isn't a lot of, uh, psychiatrists in general, but when you think about African American psychiatrists, it's almost like, where can you get those people? Uh, and we have to address the pipeline issues uh, in terms of diversity in the workforce. But there's also the societal structural issues. Uh, for instance, most of the mentally ill in the correctional, most of the people in the correctional system uh, who are incarcerated, about 64 to 65% of the people who are incarcerated today in state prisons and federal prisons are mentally ill people. And then you think about the numbers of people who are incarcerated who are Latinx or Black. And then you say, you know, we, we have a problem here that is disproportionately affecting some people other than other people. And some people may want to call that other things. They may say it's because of poverty or uh, societal issues unrelated to race but in actuality is related to race. And so there are some implicit biases in, a ter- in the way how we manage our healthcare system, how we think about our policies and practices, 
and also how how we inter- how we exchange our values uh, to communities of color. So that that's what racism in psychiatry looks like. Uh, it's not an individual, always individual, interpersonal mediated uh, in, encounters a structural issue that we have to address. I want to piggyback on what we talked about earlier about the black family and church because I think it's really important to highlight that the only form of comfort and the only form of collective uh, community was the church for black people in, during slavery, right? It was the only time where, um, you know, the slave master would allow those those enslaved people to support each other and talk to each other. And so there is a historical way that we know that it actually helped us in a lot of ways to get to where we are. But there was also it was also a time where it was believed that enslaved people could not have mental illness. I mean, Benjamin Rush, uh, who is the father of psychiatry, uh, he talked about, you know, black people having a type of leprosy. Uh, so if their skin would be a different color, then they wouldn't have, you know, some of that mental illness and dropsomania. You know, if you run away uh, from your slave master, then you're mentally ill. Those legacies that is embedded in the psychiatric uh, arena has actually played out in other ways. You know, we talk about elopement a lot, you know, patients running away or, you know, we have involuntary commitments, which may not be a big deal for someone who's coming from a predominant group or another group, but the idea of being chained up, you know, people have these ideas about psychiatry that's perpetuated in the media. Some, some of that is actually true. We do know that there has been some historical, um, you know, atrocities made by, you know, maybe well-intentioned people, but at the time their beliefs did not line up to what we would today think is an appropriate way to treat a, a patient. But those ideas is a part of the struggle that African-Americans have, and we can talk about the Tuskegee experiments, but there's been so many experiments that has stigmatized and made, quite frankly, African-American people afraid to seek treatment and oftentimes wait until the last minute to actually get psychiatric care. Yeah, I, I I think that was one of my like follow up questions is just wondering uh, your insights about the fear that exists about seeking not just like psychiatric care, but like any type of medical care. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like that's a big part of the lack of um, like initiating getting treatment or even like seeking out care. So I mean. You know, I think when we think about, you know, the life expectancy of an African-American who lives in maybe in an urban area that you can look at their zip code and you can say, today we can say how long they're going to live based on where you live. Uh, I think there's a very real sense uh, in certain communities uh, that medicine is not designed for me. They're not going to address the needs that I have. So why bother Uh, And I I really want to stress more than anything that that's not every African-American family. You know, we're not a a homogenous group. We all come from different places. You know, someone who presents with ADHD and I say the deep South who may have grown up with a bunch of trees and nature and, you know, on a farm is very different than someone who grew up in an urban area that's African-American who have ADHD, who may have had to walk down streets where there is community violence or trauma, traumas in relation to poverty and that sort of thing. Uh, But they may manifest with the same illness, but have a different idea of how to access care. 
So we, we, we have to be careful not to generalize Black people into one category and say that all Black people are mistrustful of healthcare. But we do have uh, a majority or a, a group that's disproportionately affected by uh, being more marginalized. And I think that has to do with uh, a lack of psychoeducation about uh, things, a lack of understanding of what happens when you go to a hospital or to meet with a doctor. Uh, you know, a lot of suspicion about that that really clearly could be better addressed just by actually talking to people and really going to their communities and discussing with them, this is what happens next and this is a step. And actually engaging in community centers, right? It's really important to have healthcare centers be a part of the community in a way that understands the nature of that community. I mean, I know in my training as training future doctors, I will say all the time to future doctors, have you been to a black church? I know you may not believe in religion, but have you been to, uh, uh, when I was in New Orleans, I was like, did you go to Essence? You know, that'll give you a, bit, a little bit of flavor of what the ideas and opinions are for the people that you predominantly treat in the clinics. If you haven't gone to a community and see what that community values, you have a hard time actually reaching them. So it really is building a rapport uh, with communities uh, that will help, I think, assuage some of the fears. Yeah, that that's um, that's just really interesting to me, having like the doctors go into the community and like experience it experience that for themselves that feels really like thinking about that being like a standard for doctors or psychiatrists that feels really good (laughs) and that feels like it would make um seeking out care a little bit more a a little less scary Mm -hmm. yeah um so we've talked about you know how racism shows up and on like the big picture and like a structural level, but in terms of when um, black and indigenous people of color do seek out care um, and they're in the office there, I know that there are also ways that racism shows up in, in the interaction between patient and psychiatrists sometimes. Um, and I know on your, your website, you talk a little bit about microaggressions so can you talk about like microaggressions in those interactions and just just some of the other racism that black and people of color experience when they're in the office with the psychiatrist? So, you know, it was interesting in like 2018, I was asked to uh, develop a learning lab, a microaggression learning lab for uh, the American Psychiatric Association. And I did it with uh, actually a pretty diverse group of people, someone who was in the military, someone who, uh, actually two people who were in the military uh, and really learn about their experience with microaggressions, but also some African-Americans and uh, people from the Asian community and also the uh, Latino and Jewish community. And so in that experience, we learned that microaggressions had the same tone. It was a devaluing of a person's experience, right? So, you know, for instance, you know, there's a really, really great book that I will introduce you to the ordinance. Uh, that I was a part of the origins of racism in psychiatry. But in that book, it gave case examples of experiences that uh, people of color would have. And I remember one case is distinct is an African-American man who was experiencing, you know, the police brutality and things in, you know, in the community. It wasn't happening to him per- particularly, but he was in an environment where there was no place to talk about it. And he became, he was really struggling in his job 
And uh, having these experiences, not having me to talk to, he went to, you know, therapist like anybody would after a point, like something's wrong with me, I have to get help. And, you know, you know, the therapist was like, well, are you sure that's like what's happening like to you? Like, so it's, you know, really making a person question their experience is one thing that happens, you know, it can be invalidating uh, when someone questions your experience and, and try to make you feel like, well, what you're thinking is not what, you know, that's not, that really didn't happen. Uh, and I think that happens actually a lot more. Some of it is discomfort on the part of the provider. So they're trying to be helpful and they feel uncomfortable with the situation because no one wants to be identified as being racist, right? And so they try to avoid and then that becomes an issue. Um, you know, it's also true that if you are a uh, a, a Black, Indigenous, or a, a person of color in medicine, the doctors themselves can be microaggressed with their other peers, like with their colleagues, even at the front desk. You know, I remember thinking, uh, particularly when I was in New Orleans and also a little bit here, uh, when I took off my white coat as a doctor, I could tell people treated me differently. You know, I was... Um, yeah, you know, medical director of a clinic and occasionally we would have to involuntarily commit someone or do the paperwork for involuntary commission, uh, commitment so a person can go to the emergency room and be evaluated further. And the EMS workers would come in to pick up the patient and bring them and they would direct their t- attention to um, <clears throat> my white colleague, a medical student, <laughs> a medical student. I'm the attending and ask the question. I'm like, but and then the medical student would have to say to them, no, she's the She's the boss. That's who she talks. And they still would direct the questions to that individual. So microaggressions actually happen all the time. It's everyday encounters um, that's based on implicit biases. Some of those biases are conscious, uh, but some of them are, most of them are probably unconscious. And so I think for for a long time in medicine, we tried to talk about implicit biases and microaggressions to help people understand this issue of racism but I think we have to move past that. Not to say that that's not important because it is, but I think that there are more structural issues that's making it possible for people to perpetuate microaggressions and have these interpersonal uh, interactions that are, aren't good for us. So we have to do both at the same time. Yeah, that makes sense. And and my next question is just about uh, like what are some of the things being done to help with um, microaggressions in well like you said help with everything in terms of the amount of racism that's in psychiatry because I know you also talk about cultural psychiatry so like what are the things being done to kind of transform the field of psychiatry and then can you also talk about what cultural psychiatry is yeah, so uh, I think a lot is being done, and I, I would have to say that it's the young people, it's the gen, it's the you know the what is the millennials? I get confused about the language, but it's it's you guys who are saying, hey, you know, medicine has to do better of actually addressing social justice and addressing climate change and addre- ad- addressing you know these issues with race. Um, and so I've been delighted to be a part of that journey. Uh, in terms of like educating the future doctors on how to think about that. But I think what is happening in medicine and psychiatry is there is becoming a shared uh, a shared understanding that we have to actually embed this in our structural issues. These are structural issues, so we have to see it that way. 
And so every institution across this country should be developing their own diversity and inclusion uh, committees uh, around, you know, and I'm fortunate enough to be at two places that's actually doing that. So having those people in place, uh, but also having a, uh, a educational curriculum that's designed to help, you know, residents and fellows and medical students understand what structural issues look like and what interpersonal biases and microaggressions look like. That actually is harder to do than you would imagine because there may be one or two or maybe none in your department who has expertise or have experience with that type of curriculum development. So I'm I'm actually fortunate to have had that experience, but a lot of institutions are wondering how to get that information. Like, uh, so I would I would say that it's time for, to champion people, maybe someone who's a younger uh, attending or someone even that's in their residence training to be a part of the curriculum development if you're struggling with kind of coming up with it. But also to not being afraid to do the research too. Like I mean, doctors do research all the time. So if even if you are a white person and you feel like, what do I know about this topic? You can read a book. Just like I have to read a book to figure it out. Uh, and I mean it that way because I mean, I think that Oftentimes that if there's a tax on minorities to develop the curriculum. It's also, I'm, I'm trying to remember everything you asked. So what else is being done? I think another thing that's being done is um, m- medical students are saying pretty vocally that we need this to be a part of our curriculum, right? And so because that's happening uh, and medical students pay for their training. So like it really does support a new type of, uh, I guess, advocacy, on like all levels from the structural level uh, leadership and then also from the training part, but also people who are coming in and saying, this is things that is important to me and I want to know more about it. Yeah. Yeah. And then can you talk about what cultural psychiatry is? Oh yeah. So, you know, cultural psychiatry, I think uh, is this understanding that we all bring in our own cultural norms, values uh, based on our lived experiences And so what cultural psychiatry does is it looks at, you know, categorical information, identity information, understanding that people may have variations of their identity based on their experiences. But we try to understand the perspective of people based on their cultural experiences. So, for instance, we talked about African-American culture. You know, many people don't understand the great migration for African-Americans and what that was like. So having an understanding of the Great Migration, having an understanding of Jim Crow and all of those things is a cultural experience. And we, t- we teach about that. Uh, but we also teach about, uh, you know, things like, you know, religious beliefs and things like that. So that's a cultural curriculum where we're not just talking about this person has schizophrenia. And we and I also want to say that oftentimes African-Americans are diagnosed with schizophrenia and not necessarily diagnosed with mood disorders like bipolar, right? So we have to do, we talk about those things too. Like that's a cultural psychiatrist where we understand the disparities and then we talk about how that has cultural implications. Uh, the idea of, you know, someone being criminalized or being a uh, state that they're lazy, right? Uh, IQ testing that doesn't reflect people's real capabilities, uh, but it was biased. You know, we talk about those things in cultural psychiatry. Um, but, you know, we also have moved away from cultural psychiatry with the understanding that you can't be the expert on anybody's culture. You can't be culturally competent. You know, I'm not culturally competent as an African-American about my own culture. So, like, how is it possible for a doctor to be culturally competent? But they can be 
they can be responsive and they can be sensitive, right, to those issues. But structural competency, which was coined by, uh, doc, well, created by Dr. Helena Hansen and Jonathan Metzel, who are both psychiatrists, shows teach medical students and residents and fellows about the structural issues that have racial implications, but also have gender implica- implications and have implications for people who are LGBTQI and, and more. So we're learning a lot uh, from the work that psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers are doing. One of the things that I will bring up is that when I started doing this work, there wasn't, in my opinion, a lot of literature that was coming out of the medical community. Uh, so I ended up having to look at like work that was coming from psychologists and social workers. Uh, I mean, in sociology and anthropology. And that was a little bit disheartening for me, kind of starting out not having that. So I think that there actually has been a more appreciation for research uh, around those issues in medical arenas. And so hopefully by the time, you know, maybe you, if you, you're interested in medical school, by the time you are, you have a bunch of things to, to look at and to work with. Yeah, that, that was something I, I was going to ask about is just um, the fact that a lot of research, um, a lot of research for psychiatry it doesn't include Black people. Um, and I know for me as a patient, that's difficult because I can like, like if I'm being put on a medication and I want to see like the research about it, it's not really based on people like me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to to see your thoughts on like, like what can you do as a, a black or um, a patient of color to kind of like like how do we do research to make sure the the treatment that we're getting is going to be effective for us your question is awesome and i I think that you know there is uh, a a need for community participatory research and so in the past when there was research questions about black uh, people or, or latinx people or indigenous people and other people of color there wasn't a support for the the grant money or the funding that you need to actually do that type of research. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even better yet, there wasn't support for publications around that research. And so we have a generation and generations of African-American and other people of color research that was never funded or supported in a way uh, for us to understand some of the stuff. Now, pharmaceutical companies who make medications are required to get enough diversity for them to be able to get FDA approval uh, but I don't think people really understand that as much as we would hope that they do. Uh, but it's also true that we actually need more African-American people and African people and people of the African diaspora to engage in participatory research. But it has to be collaborative. Like it has to be in a way where there's appreciation that there has been this mistrust. And so you have to be very transparent about the research that you're offering to the communities to have them feel comfortable to engage in that type of research. But we have to also recognize that research has been stimmied, that there were scientists and educators who had the information that we needed 30, 40, 50 years ago that are now just getting attention and recognition now uh, from people who are interested in studying that. Uh, because those people in the 1960s, I mean, if you look at some of the stuff like Chester Pierce, uh, his research on microaggressions, he coined the term, you know, 
You don't think he could have uh, given more information? Yes, he could have if he would have been given an opportunity. Uh, so we have an opportunity now. Uh, and this is the time where we see the influx of what's happened with COVID, the tsunami of mental health crisis in America. Uh, this is the time where people are suspicious about, you know, getting a vaccine or hesitant about getting the vaccine. It all comes from historical lenses, narratives and things that we have to work out. But we have an opportunity now because uh, it's no time like now to try to get this right. And I think that I feel optimistic about what's happening in, uh, in medicine and psychiatry. But again, I'm optimistic because young people are saying, no, this is our, this is our, this is our time and we're going to make notice of those things, take notice of those things. Yeah. I, I feel that too. Like I, I definitely, especially in the past year, I feel optimistic just about the, um, just about mental health in general and how it's starting to be talked about more, taken a little more seriously. Um, and I think in that being comfortable with just seeking out care in general, I think that's going to increase <laughs> a lot, um, especially with like the amount that these things are being promoted on like social media. Um, so yeah, I'm very optimistic too. Yeah. So we have like people like Taraji P. Henson and her foundation, mm -hmm. Boris, Loris, you know, I think it's the Boris Lawrence foundation, yeah. but, Henson foundation, but she's talking about therapy and her having actually went through therapy. Uh, I do think that we out, we're still struggling though with medications. Like, so more black people are interested in therapy and signing up for therapy and but not as many are comfortable with taking medications. And we know that for some chronic mental illnesses, uh, the way you want to get better, not that therapy is not going to help. It, therapy is very important, uh, but they're also going to need medications uh, to stabilize their moods or to you know, decrease uh, psychotic symptoms like hallucinations. Uh, those things don't go away with therapy. Uh, and so I'm hoping that in addition with the connection that people, that, that people are making with their therapists, they're also making a connection with medical providers who prescribe medications to treat uh, illnesses. Um, in terms of, you know, kind of like normalizing and, and taking some of the stigma away from taking medications, do you feel like that's something that can be um, made better by like focusing on the, those structural things that we were talking about or do you think there really needs to be more things on like the community level where we're um, educating about the like effectiveness and sometimes the need for psychiatric medications? Yeah so I mean I don't think it's one or the other I think it's both so you know the structural issue around taking medication is how medications are introduced right if your first introduction to taking the medication is a traumatic experience for you, let's say you're having, uh, a, you know, a, a break in your consciousness, you're experiencing hallucinations, you're not sleeping, you're not feeling well, and someone is telling you because you're not able to do all those things, you're not functioning, that it's time for you to be hospitalized, and you're like, as you feel like you're signing your rights away when you really are just getting treatment. Uh, that's not a good time to tell a person that they need to get over their mistrust of the system, right? 
Uh, and so then a person is free and they go home and they feel a little bit better and they say, well, I can do this on my own. So I'm not going to take the medication. That is actually the time to actually engage with them, like check on them and, and, and make sure that they are connected to a doctor and a therapist. But usually what happens is people are getting emergency treatment. They're getting inpatient treatment. But when they go into their communities, there is no infrastructure for community treatment. Or your insurance company may say, well, that's too expensive, so we're not going to pay for it. But actually, it's more expensive to do inpatient and acute care, in my opinion. You know, I, I can look, do the research a little bit. than it would be to have some community supports um, that feels good. So, like, we have to do that. We have to make community uh, treatment the mainstay of psychiatry, not incarcerated treatment, not inpatient treatment, but community treatment. We also have to uh, market medications better. Right. We have to market it better. Uh, we have to ask patients what their experience was like with medications and their side effects and their things and help them understand that. Yeah, that's a part of it. But there's another part of it, too. Uh, I, don't, I can't tell you how many times I have a patient come to me and say, well, I don't want my child to be for ADHD. I don't want them to be addicted. You know, there is really no evidence that you're going to be addicted from ADHD medication. There is a lot of evidence, however, that if you don't, treat a kid who has severe ADHD, they may go on to have substance abuse problems, but it wouldn't be because of ADHD medication. It would be because of untreated uh, symptoms that over time lead to life failures. You're not doing well in school. Your friends think you're annoying and impulsive. You always make rash decisions. You're risky. You know, you can't keep a job. You forget things, you know, and then you decide to smoke marijuana. Nothing's wrong with marijuana, but if you start to smoke marijuana and you're not doing well otherwise, it's probably not going to go well for you or alcohol and things like that. And so oftentimes we don't have that type of conversation uh, with people about medications in a way that feels safe because uh, you have to feel safe to your with your doctor to have that conversation, by the way. So there's a lot of variables. Yeah. I hope it helped. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that that's... That's really helpful. I think um, even for me, just like um, in my like desire to advocate for mental health care in general, but specifically medications, that helps me kind of understand um, like the best way to do like my advocacy work, because I've I've been someone for who's been on medications since like middle school so for a long time I've been on the boat like I know that um, medications help me be able to do the work that I do in therapy and so it's been hard to kind of communicate the the reasons why medications are helpful to other people and so I think like having you talk about um, like I, I think it was really important for you to say that like um jumping in when like someone was hospitalized and then they felt a little better and then they go home and they're like oh I don't need medication I think that's like really important to mention that that's like one of the crucial times to kind of reinforce the importance of medications and like what they're doing to help someone that just made me think about something we actually have more situations of people committing suicide directly after treatment uh, because you feel better, you think you're better, and then you something happens and you impulsively hurt yourself. So we really have to make 
those quick connections when people are out of the hospital and engage with their family, engage with their community supports around, you know, mental health. And I just, you know, really impressed with you, Jay. Thank you so much for like being transparent and sharing your journey, your story with your family, but with your uh, community and also this pot, you know, this podcast, uh, because I think that helps. Like people need to know that their doctor understands or another person experienced that too. I'm, I remember being nine years old and watching my aunt who had bipolar drive around the street that we lived on. Like she just drove around in circles for hours. And I, you know, I think about it now in terms of what I see, uh, the trauma that many black women have had. It was a, it was almost like a, um, I guess, analogy of her life. She felt like she was just going around in circles and she wasn't getting anywhere. And that makes me emotional when I think about it. But she did take her uh, bipolar medications, you know, uh, because what was told to her at the time would happen to her if she took those medications and the messaging that, you know, you're crazy if you take these meds. So, you know, she would go to her doctor and she would tell her doctor that she's taking her medications and because he did lithium levels, I don't know if you heard of lithium, but uh, it's a medication for bipolar. She would take more of the medication when she was going to see the doctor. So her lithium level would be at a certain level. And that caused her kidney damage. She ended up being on dialysis. So, you know, there is really some real harm when doctors doesn't understand the culture of the people they meet it because they make these snapshot decisions, not understanding that people are telling you what you want to hear out of fear that you're going to see them a certain way if you don't ask them, hey, you know, I noticed that you're telling me to take the medications, but I really don't believe you. Let's talk about it, you know? And I'm not judging you because, you know what, taking medications are hard and, like, you know, it probably feels unfair, too, with everything else that you've been through, that you've been through that. We also need to talk about intergenerational trauma, right? And how everyone has the same genetic makeup, but because of intergenerational trauma that you inherited or whatever, it's opening up, you know, mental illness. And we're seeing how adverse childhood experiences, right, uh, is causing a whole generation of people to have mental illness that may not have had it if we had better structures. That's what we talk about when we talk about the social determinants of health, the social determinants of mental health, where you live, where you work, where you play, where you worship matters. You know, black minds matter. Black lives matter. You know, mental health matters. Uh, and it's just as important as physical health. Like, why, you wouldn't tell a person with diabetes, oh, child, don't take your diabetic medication. It's going to get better. You know, we're going to be fine. You know, we don't do that. But we have stigmatized psychiatric medicine so much uh, that people are fearful, literally fearful about what that means if they are diagnosed. Yeah, I I feel like even what you said right there could help someone who's like on the edge, not sure whether to like make that decision to ask for help. I feel like that could be really helpful for people. And again, I think just speaking about it, like you said, that that's like the reason for the podcast is just to continue to have conversations about this to just make it less scary. I think... Yes. I think there is like, even for me, like doctors are intimidating. <laughs> like it, it's, it's sometimes really nerve wracking to 
speak up for yourself in a doctor's office just in general and then when it comes to something like talking about your mental health and someone's administering a medication to you that's supposed to be helping and if you know you're feeling a side effect or it's not helping in the way that they say they were it can be scary to speak up about that but you know we're supposed to you know, talk to people about what their experiences are going to be like, Mm -hmm. right? We're not supposed to wait until they have an experience to inform them. From day one, the the moment you start the medication, you're supposed to be educating your patient about that experience, you know? So I I actually sometimes take a lot of time before I even start a medication just to make sure that the person has some buy-in, that they understand. Now, I can't always do that because if it's an acute situation, is important to get a person medicated so they don't harm themselves or others and they're stabilized. But if you have an opportunity to engage in more conversations with a person to make sure that they are clear, they their questions are answered, they've done their own research. You know, I oftentimes tell people, you know, places that they can do research that actually is a standard of care uh, that is actually coming from experts because not every research is good. Like you can go down a dark way up in, uh, looking uh, on online for answers, and then they would just make things worse. But you know, giving them the opportunity to do their own research and come back to you is really, really important. But it also means that we also have to change the structure of how we practice, right? And that's a whole other issue. But doctors oftentimes don't have the time to do that. Uh, but there may be other people who can help with that—a nurse practitioner, you know, a social worker. Uh, you know, someone, a PA, or even just reimagining what psychiatrists can do, like reimagining that we're not just medication management specialists, but we're therapists too, and we're, you know, psychoeducation experts and all that type of thing. I can go on a tangent, Jade. (laughs) Keep me on track. Yeah, um, so I think something that you can probably just send me, I was going to ask about uh, like you were talking about, you have certain places you send people to do their research and, and some literature. So maybe you can like send a list that I can include in the notes um, for people. Yeah. Um, and so my last question, um, which is what I've been asking um, during my interviews, is just what's something that you wish people um, knew about the field of psychiatry just in general? And then also, what do you wish more people knew about racism in the field of psychiatry? Hmm. That's two horror ones because it's so much to say about psychiatry. Uh, If you're a person that's interested in becoming a psychiatrist or training uh, in a psychiatric field, you can do just about anything. You can work for any type of community. There's so many opportunities uh, for psychiatrists, I actually talked to a psychiatrist just the other day who's consulting on a film, right? Because of his clinical experience and his understanding, he's asked to consult on the film. So, you know, medicine, I think, is coming to appreciate that we have some very skilled people who can do many, many different things. Uh, but what I, what I hope that people understand the most about psychiatry as someone who treats patients every day is that you are not alone, right? That mental health issues are very real and is prevalent today and may become even more prevalent. So because you're not alone, I can guarantee you there is somebody in your community, maybe even somebody in your home 
that's suffering the same way as you who needs help. Um, and psychiatry is actually, to me, in my opinion, the real medicine, because if the brain and the brain and behavior doesn't work, nothing works, right? Nothing can work the way it should when we don't take care of our mental health. Uh, in terms of like racism and psychiatry, I would like to say that racism and psychiatry is real. Can we stop questioning whether or not racism is real in every part of medicine? Because it is. Uh, when we stop questioning it and stop saying, well, I'm not a racist and become anti-racist, right? When we become anti-racist, we begin to say that I noticed something that's not right and I have the power and the privilege to do something about it. I have a lot of power as a black woman and professional to do something about it. So if I feel I have power to do something about it and I come from a marginalized group because of societal issues, then everybody should feel empowered that they can do something about the issue. So the only thing I want to talk about racism and psychiatry is that can we stop questioning whether or not it's real or not? I mean, can we just move forward and get some real work done? Um, but, you know, we all have implicit biases. We all have things that we're going to keep thinking, even if we hope to not think that way. But just because you think it doesn't mean it has to play out in your behaviors, in your decision making. I can be an inclusive person and still struggle with certain people's decisions. Uh, it's not mutually exclusive. And that's what we're trying to get here, that we can actually make it a society where people aren't disproportionately affected by mental illness because of their race. They're not disproportionately incarcerated because of their race. Uh, they're not disproportionately affected by educational system and housing and all of that because of their race. So that's, I guess that's it. I said more than I thought I was going to say, but, uh, you know, it, I also want to say that it's very uncomfortable to talk about this. It's hurtful. It's harmful. It's traumatic uh, for people to talk about these issues. Uh, it's scary. There is, we need to have more psychologically safe places for people like me for patients like me uh, to have these conversations and not feel like there's going to be some backlash or, you know, some gaslighting or, you know, fear of losing your job or your reputation or, you know, your livelihood because you have a different opinion than maybe somebody else. Uh, that's what needs to stop. So lastly, I just want to ask, what are some ways my audience and I can stay up to date with you and the work that you're doing? That's a great question. So follow me on Twitter. I'm not a big Twitter person, but I think if you follow me, you'll see if I'm doing something big. If I'm doing an educational resource, you'll be able to follow me anyway. It's at, it's at uh, Dr. Kim Answers. So at Dr. Kim Answers is how you can find me on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, you also can, if you're interested in mentorship or executive leadership on how to become uh, a person who practices health equity in your workplace, you can look me up at bhetcgroup.com, bhetcgroup.com, and hopefully you can provide the information to them uh, so you can get more learning experience about me. I also have my uh, website at drkimanswers.com. You can find me there. Uh, but, you know, more than anything, you can find people like me at uh, Black Psychiatrists. Uh, online, also on uh, Twitter and um, Instagram. So there's a number of ways that you can interact with someone like me. And also, I want you guys to remember that there's not that many of people. 
uh, that look like me in the field. And so we are sometimes taking a while to get to get back to you. But I hope to be able to connect uh, everyone with someone who can be helpful. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to share this conversation. I I really appreciate you know you giving your insight on like the field in general, um, but also sharing. Uh, like your personal experiences, because um, I think that's really important to also like humanize psychiatrists a little bit more and share about the uh, Black psychiatrist experience. So thank you so much for being thank here. You. So before the next section starts, I just want to give a quick disclaimer. Um, I'm about to share some of my experiences with psychiatrists and medication. And I just want to emphasize this is, you know, what I've experienced. And this is by no means the standard or what every person experiences with finding the right psychiatrist or finding the right combination of medications. Um, And I also want to note that a lot of the kind of adverse side effects that I experienced with some of the medications happened before I received genetic testing. Um, And that genetic testing helped let my doctors know, you know, the the types of medicines that would work for me and the type of medicines that wouldn't work for me. Um, So after having that knowledge, things with figuring out the right combination of meds got better but yeah i just wanted to make sure it's clear that like these are just you know my experiences and experiences with getting meds and going to a psychiatrist is different for everyone hi guys so for the second part of this episode um it's going to be a little different because i had a hard time finding someone to interview as a survivor for this specific episode um I think it makes sense because um, there's still a lot of stigma around taking meds. And since I'm someone who's been on medication for a while, I thought this would be a good time for me to step into the survivor role. And this will also give you guys a chance just to get to know me a little more. Um, So today I have Zen with me. Zen is my boyfriend and he is someone that's... um, been really helpful in my healing process and he knows everything (laughs) about me I've told him about you know my healing journey up until we met and then he's been a part of that journey for the past four years um so yeah I thought he'd be a good person to have on to ask me some questions about my experience with psychiatric meds Welcome, Zen. <laughs> Hello. Um, I'm really happy to be here, and I'm glad that I can interview you and um, your audience can learn a little bit more about the host of this wonderful podcast. So, yeah. Um, I was going to originally ask some questions um, just so people can get to know you. So let's talk about where you're from. Uh, I'm from Baltimore, Maryland, but we currently live in the Bay. So why'd you start the podcast? So for a long time, I've been wanting to do something related to mental health advocacy. And this project actually started as me wanting to create a support group for people at our college where, you know, 
students could come and talk about things going on with their life and then also receive mental health resources and education. But when I brought this up to my psych professor, she suggested that I do a podcast instead just because I'm not like a licensed mental health professional. So in terms of like the logistics and safety of a support group situation, you know, I would need a little bit more training to be able to initiate something like that. And, you know, she said that the podcast would be a great way to bring on mental health experts while also being able to, like, use my experience with my mental health to help other people. Because that's really where this all came from is just since I've been through so much with my own mental health, um, probably since I was like 15 or 16, just have really wanted to use my experience to help other people in some way. So I can hopefully help someone have an easier time than I did. So where do you see this going in terms of the podcast, your brand? Where do you you see this going? Well, I really enjoy doing the podcast. Um, I did not expect to enjoy it this much, and I'm really glad that I do. Um, So I can see myself doing this podcast for a long time. But eventually, I definitely want to grow this into something bigger, into something where people can come receive education and and resources and maybe even mental health care all under the umbrella of whatever organization that I come up with. Okay, well, I think there's going to be an episode where you talk about yourself a little bit more in depth. So um, let's just get started with the interview questions, all right? Okay, so... Let's just first talk about your background and your experience with meds. So how long have you been taking meds? I have been taking meds since I was 12. Yeah, I started at 12 years old after bringing up some symptoms to my pediatrician. So how long is that? How many years? Just for the audience. 10, 9, 9. Math. Math. And so what was that like? What was that like as a 12-year-old being on meds? Um... From what I can remember, it wasn't um, too strange. You know, I have a mom who has um, mental illness as well. So the idea of, like, mental health care wasn't completely new. But I also didn't know anyone else besides my mom who was getting any sort of treatment. So, yeah, it was new. And, you know, I feel like the first few medications I was put on didn't really... I didn't really feel any effects from them either. So, you know, it's hard to ask that question because even though I was taking them, it was like I I wasn't really feeling the effects. So, you know, obviously you've been taking meds for a pretty long time. So, you know, meds are a process. Like finding the right concoction of meds is a process, but especially because you're somebody who has multiple diagnoses, multiple things you've had to deal with. What are what are some of the things that you've been prescribed meds for? So, like, what are my diagnoses? Yes. Yeah. Um, so the first thing I was diagnosed with was depression, um, which now I know is more considered treatment-resistant depression considering the amount of medication that I've tried and that haven't worked. Um, and then shortly after the depression diagnosis, Uh, It was clear to, you know, my therapist and my doctors that I also had some pretty severe anxiety um, and also a panic disorder because I uh, was having panic attacks. 
So depression, anxiety, and a panic disorder, those are the three diagnoses that I'm medicated for. And then I also have an eating disorder, which is a coping skill for those diagnoses, so you don't really get medicated necessarily for an eating disorder. So through all of those diagnoses, how many meds have you been prescribed so far? Uh, I can say for sure over 20. Um, I think it is important to note that I have a hard time remembering a lot of components of not just treatment, but of my life around the times when I was struggling the most and my symptoms were the most severe. But yeah, from what I remember, it's definitely been over 20. So, you know, obviously being black and, you know, just having mental health challenges in general, um, culturally, we're trained to not really talk about meds per se publicly. And, you know, you've taken a lot of meds and you were taking them pretty early. Um, You know, is there any guilt or shame or just, you know, what are your feelings around the fact that you've, you know, been diagnosed with, you know, this many things and you've had to be treated for this long and you're still being treated? What's that like? That's a really good question. Um, In terms of guilt and shame, those are two of the hardest emotions for me to tolerate and for me to like get myself out of, I guess. Um, Starting from like when I first started meds, I think I hold myself responsible for a lot of the um a lot of the things that were really not my responsibility like there's a large part of me that wished when I first started getting prescribed medications I would have asked more questions or I just would have been more active in my role as a patient in my care but I can also say now that I was a child you were 12 yeah Yeah, I was a child and it it like it makes sense that I completely trusted uh, word for word what like every psychiatrist was saying that I was like either diagnosed with because I was misdiagnosed with bipolar at one point, um, and just thinking that the only way to deal with the things that I was going through was to be um, essentially over medicated. And, you know, I I know also, I think it's important to note that I know my parents also hold a lot of guilt about that time because all of us were new to just the idea of receiving mental health care for me. I mean, like for my parents, having to find mental health care for a child was completely new to them. And so, yeah, so I know that they hold guilt from that time because... Being honest, um, there were some medications that I put on that were more harmful than helpful. Um, but again, we didn't know. We, we were literally just trying to figure out the best for me. And then in terms of now, I have been in treatment for a long time. I've been getting a lot of um, mental health care, whether it's in the form of like therapy and psychiatry, but also I've been hospitalized Um, a number of times Um, and then I'm doing like pretty intense treatment for my depression and anxiety right now and it's been a lot and I have a lot of guilt around needing so much treatment for the amount of time that I've been getting it um, and feeling like there's something wrong with me that it's taking me so long and it's taking so much energy and 
and time and other people's energy for me to get better. And that's something I'm also working on, like not having this guilt that I'm just a burden in the lives of like all of the people who support me. And even like I I have trouble not feeling like a burden even to like my therapist and my psychiatrist um, and to you. And and you know that that's something I struggle with. So, yeah, I think I have a lot of shame around still needing the amount of treatment that I'm getting right now. But I'm also aware that like I I know that I'd rather be doing this now than later in life and I am able to see improvements now and I'm doing a better job of not letting the amount of time that I've been receiving treatment fog my view of all the progress I've made. So in the previous question I remember um, mentioning you know how being black affected you know, those feelings around taking meds and getting treatment. So let's talk about how being black has, you know, affected your ability to actually get treatment. Because I know that, you know, black people are disproportionately affected when it comes to getting proper care. So do you feel like you being black has affected the quality of treatment you've received? Um, yeah, in, in some ways, uh, definitely at the beginning of my treatment after, you know, kind of like immediately receiving a bipolar diagnosis, which is really common for black people. Um, another way that being black has affected my mental health care is around my eating disorder, um, which for a long time, like while I was super active in the eating disorder before being hospitalized, I just didn't make the connection of black people having eating disorders because that's not something I had ever seen. Um, I thought what I was doing was, that's a whole other story, but like I just thought things that I was doing was just being healthy, um, but obviously it turned into an obsession and became an eating disorder. But again, like I had never seen or heard of a black person having an eating disorder. So it was really hard for me to accept that when it was told to me. And like, even after being hospitalized, it was hard for me to be like, okay, like this is actually an eating disorder. Um, And then once I was hospitalized and I had been in multiple hospitalizations, there were barely any black people. I can think of two who I encountered when I was in eating disorder treatment. So, um, you know, I, I feel like I've been lucky to have providers who are pretty uh, culturally sensitive. And I've kind of always had like at least like one black provider. I have a pediatrician who is amazing and was so, so crucial in in me getting the care that I needed when I had my eating disorder. And so having her was also really lucky, (laughs) like something something not a lot of people get, like a black medical doctor on their side. But having her helped with uh, seeking out the proper care for me. Having a medical doctor that you trust is really helpful in finding resources that will actually work for you. Or having any type of uh, provider that you really, really trust and that you feel like understands you to like the extent that anyone can understand a person, 
that's really helpful in creating a plan of care that'll actually work for you. I think there's a lot of instances where people have relationships with their providers that are pretty distant and there's not a lot of rapport being built unless it's between like the patient and the therapist. Um, But I feel like Again, like trust is such a big thing and not even like your doctor trusting you, but like you trusting your doctor and really feeling like you can go to them and tell them anything and feeling secure in the fact that they're going to listen to you and that they want the best for you. Yeah. So speaking of trust, I know that you've you've had a lot of psychiatrists, so I'm sure that you have, you know, plenty of experiences that you've had with those five psychiatrists. So what would you say is the most bizarre experience you've had um, dealing with the psychiatrist or dealing with meds in general? Um, well, in terms of with meds, I've had a lot of experience with some pretty like bad and severe side effects from meds. Uh, like one medication I took, it made me slur my speech so every time I talked like it was like I had like a whole pack of bubble gum in my mouth like I felt like I couldn't like enunciate so I had that I had a medication that gave me a tremor so I would be like shaking all the time or like when I walked down the steps my legs would shake so I had to like hold on to the the railing and the wall to get down the steps and then like the worst the worst one out of all of these is, was my first psychiatrist uh, prescribed me a medication that I'm actually still on, but back then when I was 12, or I was probably 13 by then, prescribed me eight times the dose that I'm on now. And that caused a whole slew of problems, um, but probably the most uncomfortable one was I just, I was having hallucinations because of how many how high of a dose I was and then I was on a lot of other medications too um so yeah that was really hard and then I've just had psychiatrists who you know have 20 to 30 other patients so when you meet with them you get to sit there for 15 minutes and all they ask is their like list of questions to check if your symptoms have changed and like if you're suicidal or if you smoked or drank alcohol, like that's like the bare minimum of the appointment that I've had. But then on the whole opposite side of the spectrum, like my psychiatrist now is like basically a therapist too, because she asks me, um, yes, she asks me about symptoms and how the medications that I'm taking, how I'm doing with them, but she also asks me about school and work and this podcast and like eating, like I don't even go for her for eating disorder treatment, but she knows that's something that I deal with. And she always checks with me about that. So yeah, I've had the whole range of psychiatrists from like being strictly medical and not caring (laughs) about anything else in my life to like now where it feels like I have like two therapists. There's levels. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so you've had many experiences with meds. How important were meds in getting you to the point that you're at now? And let me just preface this. You're not fully recovered by any means. 
um, just to be clear to your audience, but you know, you've made a lot of progress. So, you know, how important were meds in that? Yeah, so you're right. I, and that's something I, I am not afraid of sharing because I don't want to give off the impression like I am recovered and all healed and feeling great all the time because that's not true. Um, yeah, meds were, are very important in my journey. Um, they're the reason I'm able to do the therapy that I'm doing. And by therapy, I mean the, the talk therapy that I do. Um, my therapist and I do a lot of um, work looking at my inner child, and we do something called parts work. And that takes a lot of energy, and, and it can get really heavy um, and overwhelming. And the meds that I'm on now allow me to be able to handle all the things that I'm processing without going back into a state of like crisis and not being able to cope with symptoms and to know that the symptoms that I feel aren't going to hurt me. But it took me a while to get to a place where I had the right combination of medications that were actually helpful for me for a long time, probably up until like Two years ago, it was just really hard for me to even take my meds because it's just so frustrating uh, being on medication but still feeling like shit. And I have days now where it's like, I've, I've been doing this for so long. I'm taking these meds. I'm doing this treatment. But I, I'm having a hard time getting up in the morning. I'm having a hard time focusing. I feel like my body is buzzing all the time. And that can get really frustrating. But when I'm in therapy and I'm able to do the work, I can just like feel, uh, and I think that comes with age too, just being able to like feel emotionally and energetically, I have more space to process emotions, process things that have happened to me in the past, while also managing symptoms of like anxiety and panic and like lack of motivation from depression. And I have meds that are a big part in the reason why I'm able to do that now. And I also, which I want to do a whole episode on this, but I have to put in a word for psychedelic-assisted therapy because I am doing ketamine-assisted therapy, and it's been... I'm speechless (laughs) to how much it has allowed me to process things and allowed me to like look at myself in terms of all parts of myself and it's helped me not to identify so much with being an anxious person like people used to ask me like something about me and I felt like the only thing I could come up with was that I'm anxious all the time but now like that's not something I identify with so much where it clouds all of the other aspects that make up who I am. Okay, so let's uh, let's pivot the conversation quite a bit. So let's talk about the current state of meds and how it relates to just the American medical system. So, what ways do you think, or do you do you think big pharma and just the American medical system and insurance and all of that have affected you getting your um, getting proper care? Insurance is the most frustrating part about all of this 
Because they can decide one day that they don't think you need to be getting treatment anymore and they'll just stop covering it. Like I was in a partial or a intensive outpatient program for my eating disorder and I had several weeks left before I was at a point where I would be okay to discharge and my insurance decided one week that I was just that they weren't going to cover it anymore and I had to be discharged from that program and start like outpatient treatment way before um, you know it was planned for me to. So there's that, there's the process of getting insurance approval for medication. Like I I do it (laughs) every time I see a new psychiatrist and every couple of months, but then there will be a month where I go to pick up my meds and they're like, oh, your insurance hasn't approved it yet. And so I go a few days without meds because even though I've been on this for a while, they take however many business days to approve it again even though last month I was already taking this so it can it gets really frustrating having to deal with insurance um and what's also frustrating is that mental health care is so expensive so insurance is necessary if you don't have the means to pay out of pocket which a lot of people don't because it it can get ridiculous Um, Luckily, like my therapist isn't covered by insurance, but, you know, I'm lucky enough to be able to pay for that. And she's able to like accommodate for my needs a a little, which is nice. But um, yeah, insurance sometimes feels like a barrier to receiving the care that you need. And it can be hard to have the motivation (laughs) after having to deal with insurance and figuring all that stuff out to then still go in and get your treatment after having to like basically convince someone over the phone that you are sick enough to need treatment. And I think that's that's an issue because that kind of gives the sense that like you have to be in crisis to be able to get mental health care. Well, that shouldn't be the standard. You should be able to go in and get care before you're in crisis. Um, so yeah, I think it's frustrating. It's, um, that's also like a goal I have is to do, to be able to contribute in some way in, in making these services more accessible and less expensive and insurance less of an issue, less of a barrier to getting the care that people need. Okay. So what are your top two tips when it comes to navigating insurance for your meds? Give yourself plenty of time. Like, for example, don't wait until you're out of a medication to make sure that insurance has approved your next few doses. So that's a big one. Like, give yourself some time because insurance takes their time. They're running on their own time. So that's important. Um, Also... It's hard because I was going to say, like, be patient, (laughs) but it's really hard. It's really frustrating to have to, like, prove that you're sick enough to be getting coverage from them. Um, So I would just say, like, try not to let that interfere with the actual work that you're doing. And because from experience, I... I can say that sometimes 
having insurance say that you're not sick enough to be getting coverage makes made me feel like oh I don't I'm not sick enough to like be getting any help uh, and it just made me feel like either I wasn't actually like dealing with a uh, mental illness or it just made me feel really bad about myself like I wasn't working hard enough so I would just say like insurance is not an entity that can accurately say whether you need or don't need treatment like you know that for yourself your providers know that insurance is just something that gets in the way sometimes um so yeah that's that's a tip i would give too because that can get frustrating so from your story it seems like especially when it comes to therapy or treatment that doesn't really involve meds insurance is just like like super gatekeeping when it comes to that stuff so um you know some people would see this and be like you know they do that on on purpose because they want you to get meds because it's easy to sell somebody some meds sell the insurance company meds so you know do you in your experience feel like meds have been pushed on you more than therapy that's a good question. I I think I can say yes to that because um, before my current psychiatrist, I've never had a psychiatrist talk to me about the possibility of coming off of my meds or even coming off of one of my meds. Like there was never a discussion about, you know, this is how long you'll be on them or like you're going to be on these meds till you get to this point. And then at that point, we can talk about, you know, coming down. I have never had that discussion with the psychiatrist before my current one. No, I think it is important to note that I think this is probably the first psychiatrist where you've actually brought that up to them. So, you know, just keep that in mind. Yeah, well, this psychiatrist and my my psychiatrist before, I, I did bring up... Uh, explicitly like being on meds is something that I like I first of all I want to be on like the least amount of medications as possible um, because it got to a point where I was on so many medications that it started to get hard to know what each one was doing and if a symptom I was having was the result of this medication or this medication like we just didn't know because I was on so many so like how many the most I've been on at one time is probably like seven or eight. Um, But moving out, you know, moving to California made me responsible for the providers I was seeking out. And, you know, I had to be my own adult (laughs) and advocate for myself in all my appointments. And so I told them I don't want to have to be on a million medications at one time. And I also want to talk about the possibility of like eventually at some point in my life not being on meds or like being on the bare minimum of meds uh yeah that's a good point that like I I didn't have the like sense of agency before moving out here to like be like okay I don't want to be on this amount of meds for the rest of my life okay so you know this is students of mine and 
one of the missions is to provide resources and knowledge and stuff like that. So I'm going to just ask you a few questions that regard lessons you've learned, you know, with all of this time you've spent dealing with psychiatrists and with meds um, and basically things that you've learned that have helped you be more successful and, you know, see more progress in your mental health journey. So just walk us through how you found your first, how you found your current psychiatrist. So for this current psychiatrist, it was a bit of a unique situation because I was looking for someone who could manage my medication while also doing ketamine assisted therapy with me. Um, and so that kind of limited my options a significant amount. And then I looked for, um, first of all, I reached out to her directly. I didn't like call the practice that she works at and was like, uh, I'm a new patient, I need a psychiatrist. Put me with someone. I like reached out to her and was like, hi, like I, I found you um, on the practice's website and I feel like we'd be a good fit. I want to get treatment for these things and, you know, medication management for this and like sent that email to her. And I also, being completely honest, I seeked out, I was seeking out a provider that wasn't white, a psychiatrist that wasn't white, uh, just because I wanted to have one of the main people in my treatment team be able to relate. I wanted us to be able to relate a little more. Uh, so that was also something that I was explicitly looking for in my search. But if I was like going somewhere to find, like moving somewhere and needed to find a new one, I would do the sim a similar process. Um, what would be your very first step? I My first step would actually be to go to my insurance website and look for providers through there and see what they suggest or like the providers that are covered. I feel like that's always a good first place to look because one, if you're able to find a good provider that's covered by insurance, great. You don't have to pay out of pocket. Um, and two... If you're not able to find a provider through there, that at least gives you like a start and shows you where you can look. So yeah, I would start by looking, going through my insurance and seeing who they cover in the area. And then I also use Google to uh, search for psychiatrists who um, treat the specific diagnoses that I have. Uh, so, and this is the same thing I do with a therapist. You know, I search psychiatrist, um, and then my diagnoses, which is anxiety, panic disorder, eating disorder, depression, um, and then in my area. Um, for my therapist, I added holistic in there because I wanted a therapist that didn't use one form of therapy to treat me because I, I just like having multiple methods in order to process some of the things that I'm going through. Um... Okay, so what do you what do you specifically look for in a psychiatrist when you're doing that search? What are what are the check boxes that you you know check off before you even pick somebody? I want them to be trauma informed. I feel like that's important, especially as a black person, to have a trauma informed therapist. And then just as a person who has been through a lot of uh, psychiatrists. There's trauma around the lack of effective care that I've gotten. So trauma-informed is a big, a big one. 
Oh, another big one, uh, which is, again, unique to the person. But for me, I need someone who has at least a little bit of awareness, knowledge, education around eating disorders, just because it's it's hard to be with a provider that's not sensitive to people with eating disorders because they could potentially say something that's triggering for me. So that's also something that I look for. Does race matter? I, I think that it depends. Like, a white psychiatrist is fine as long as they're culturally sensitive and as long as they're, like, aware of their privilege. But, yeah, so I don't think race matters too much. But then again, I did seek out, like, a non-white psychiatrist this time just because I've only had white psychiatrists up until now. But, like, my therapist is white. And she's the best therapist you've ever had. Yeah, yeah. and she's, like, literally, I've never, he's, I don't have words to describe. Angel sent from heaven. Yes. yes, like, actually, an angel. So, you know, say you're in your first few um, appointments with your psychiatrist. Um, what are some things that would kind of scream out to you, this isn't the right psychiatrist for me? Um... One thing that I experienced with with a lot of psychiatrists where I will tell them something in one session and then the next session it's like I have to tell it to them like it was for the first time. Um, so yeah, if you feel like there's any part of what you're telling them, especially if it's something that's really important to you, if you feel like they're not listening to that, that's a big red flag. Also, if you feel rushed during your appointments, I would say that's not, like, an indication where you need to, like, oh, leave them immediately. But, like, that's something I would say, uh, bring it up and be like, I'm feeling like we don't have time to talk about everything we need to talk about in our session. Is there anything we can do about that? And if there's no change, then, yeah, maybe you should seek out someone else. But I think definitely if it feels like you're not able to say everything that needs to be said, that's... That's a red flag, too. Okay, let's talk about being prescribed a new med. You know, so say in your next session, you are prescribed a new medication. What are some questions you would ask your psychiatrist? Uh, I would ask about potential side effects. How, and, and usually within there, this next thing falls under side effects, but if it'll affect my appetite which again is important because I am in recovery from an eating disorder. Um, if it will affect sleep is another thing that I have to ask because I struggle with sleeping at night. And then also, which this is something that as an adult, I think has become more important to ask. Um, and then making sure you are aware of and they tell you what the medication is for and how it's supposed to help you like what's the expected effect and i feel like if you're able to get all of that information you have a pretty good idea of like what to expect from being on this medication i think you should also ask about like dosages but that's the kind of thing that the psychiatrist usually brings up on their own and then when you go home after that appointment do a google search um take everything you see online with a grain of salt just because it's online. Um, and I would bring whatever you find to your psychiatrist and use that to like ask more questions about the medication. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So are there any like specific websites that you go to in order to do your research on that? Or is it just like general Google? 
I don't use sources <laughs> that would necessarily be considered reliable. It's a Google search though, so it's like, yeah. yeah. But like I, like I, I sometimes do Google, but I also. That's why you bring it to the psychiatrist at the end of the day. Exactly. Because I was going to say, I also sometimes go on Reddit um, just to see other people's experience with that specific medication. Because since I'm someone who has had experiences with having the worst possible side effect from a medication <laughs> happen to me, I just always tend to like look up and see like what's common for other people to experience um, or just any other side effects that my psychiatrist haven't mentioned any other possibilities of side effects. So I feel like Reddit, <laughs> although it's not like a reliable source, it's people talking about their personal experience. And I feel like that can be helpful sometimes. And then if I see something on there that kind of concerns me in some way, I can bring it to my psychiatrist. Okay, so speaking about side effects, how do you deal with side effects? I, yeah, you just got to tough it out. Like, <laughs> like it's, I'm, yeah, like, I'm not good at dealing with side effects at all, um, because I'm just so sensitive. I'm such a sensitive person, and so whenever I have a side effect that makes me uncomfortable, it's really hard for me to deal with it, <laughs> um, and that's why I said, like, you got to just, like, thug it out until it goes away. Like, one, uh, one of the worst side effects that I get from a current medication, the one that I'm actually coming off of, is if I miss a dose, even by, like, a couple hours, I start itching, like, unbearable itching. And it's really uncomfortable. It's like chicken pox, but there's no ointment you can put anywhere because there's no actual rash. You're just itchy. So, how do you deal with side effects? It's it's hard to answer because side effects can be different, but for me, I cry. <laughs> I have, like, itched to the point of just, like, having scratches all over my body, which isn't good. So when would you say a side effect is severe enough to bring it up to your psychiatrist and be like, mm, I don't, I, this isn't worth what it's giving me? I think it's important to bring up any side effect to your doctor, even if it's one that feels good. I think that's important uh, to bring up because all of the, it's all information for your psychiatrist to like put into their knowledge about you so they can understand how you react to medication. Okay, so let's talk about um, what you do outside of you know, your psychiatric care and meds to, well, I mean, alongside those things, what you do in order to kind of meet your mental health goals or, you know, continue on path of progress, whether it's up or down, sideways. Um, so therapy is my main anecdote for my mental health right now. Yeah, so I do therapy twice a week. Well, now... I'm about to switch to once a week, which is progress. Um, but yeah, I do therapy, and in therapy we do, like, looking at childhood stuff, processing stuff from there, parts work, um, which I can put a link in the description about that. We do a lot of, like, somatic stuff. Um, so I'm someone that feels emotions 
really intensely like physically in my body um and so we do a lot of work like exploring the ways in which different emotions affect different parts of my body and how it feels and we do exercises to help me be able to calm down my nervous system when it gets a little too activated and then outside of that I do yoga uh every day and I think that's move any type of movement is really helpful for me whether it's yoga or I've been training to be able to uh, do handstands and all types of like hand balances for the past year. So that's been something that's been helpful. Walks and hikes are really helpful in like being outside. Um, yeah, going on hikes, going by the water to the beach is really important for me, which is it's great that we live in California now because that's we have easy access to that. And then also throughout my day, I just have little things that I need to do to maintain my mental health. Uh, hygiene is something that's really important for maintaining my mental health because those hygiene things, like simple things like showering and, and like brushing my teeth, those are the first things to kind of go when I when my mental health is like starting to go in a direction that I don't really want it to go. Um, so doing that breath work like little rituals in the evening, like making tea for myself. Um, yeah, I think yeah, I, I think, think that, that you know, when it comes to meds, uh, a lot of people feel like a lot of people think that taking a med is like popping a pill and you're good. But even how we differ as people, you are somebody who, um, you know, requires a little bit more maintenance when it comes to your mental health, and for you. You take, what, like four meds now? And you still have to do, a, it's basically like managing your mental health is like a full-time job. Whereas for me, I take one med and I have a bunch of systems around myself that I strategically place so I can remain on a constant, you know, mental state. And taking that med kind of just helps me have a baseline. So I, I think it's just important that people realize that meds just help you kind of have a consistent baseline. And then the things you do around, you know, psychiatry, which could be therapy, which could be, you know, some type of psychedelic assisted thing, you know, self-care, showering, like, you know, those are all things that go into your mental health and yeah hopefully that makes sense yeah i i think yeah you're right in, in that it's important for people to realize that meds are just a vehicle to help you be able to handle the work that needs to be done so you earlier you talked about how important therapy has been in your healing like i would i think it's safe to say for you that therapy is like number one and one thing that i've noticed that has you know even further improved your experience is having you you your therapist and your psychiatrist be on you know communicative terms with one another when it comes to your care yeah i think it's really important for all components of a treatment team to be communicating with each other because you know we're all working towards the same goal uh 
Well, at least you should be. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You should all be on the same page about, like, your treatment goals. So um, that's one thing that's, that's very important for me when finding providers is finding people who are willing to communicate with your other providers. And it also helps because, like... For me, for example, I'm closer with my therapist than I am with my psychiatrist because my therapist, you know, we've just been working together longer and our sessions together are more in-depth. And so since I'm a little more comfortable with her, sometimes I tell her things that I'm not necessarily comfortable with telling my psychiatrist. And um, what's great for me is that my psychiatrist, my therapist, and I uh, all meet together every few weeks. Um, And that's helpful for making sure everyone is aware of, like, how I'm actually doing. Because sometimes as a patient, when you get into a psychiatrist's office, you can say things that may not necessarily be true, but you say them just because you don't want to feel like you're going to make your psychiatrist mad or like make them think of you in a negative light or um, think that you're like not trying or something. Um, or like those are some th- thoughts that I struggle with sometimes. So being able to like have us all like in a room or in a Zoom room all together uh, is really helpful in, you know, stating how I'm actually doing, talking about what the treatment goals are, and, you know, they can talk about, like, their plans, my therapist plans for, like, what we'll do in therapy and my psychiatrist's plans in terms of medications and stuff. Are there any last things you would say about psychiatry and how important it's been and your recovery? Yes. I wouldn't be where I am today without medication and my psychiatrists. Um, It's been a journey, um, and it hasn't been easy, but I don't want people, like, leaving this episode thinking that it's not worth it to seek out psychiatric care, uh, because it is. I think you've made it clear that it's important. Um, yeah, it's just like anything else in life. Like, it's not a smooth journey to get to the perfect mental health care system that you need. The rough journey makes it worth it. Yeah. It makes the end result worth it because it makes you really appreciate the progress you've made and where you're at, wherever you're at. So. Yeah, I am very grateful for, you know, the meds that I'm on now and the journey that I've had. And, you know, I am in a place where things are looking pretty good and the future's looking bright so yeah thank you for listening to this episode of students of mind i really enjoyed making this one and i hope you guys enjoyed it and learned something new if you'd like to follow dr kim all of her information is in the description below as well as some resources and links to things that we talked about in the episode if you want to follow me or zen our links are in the description as well if you have time please rate and review the show that helps all of this information and awareness reach more ears thanks again for listening and i'll see you next time
Intuition is our spiritual GPS and the single best tool that we have for navigating our lives. I'm Victoria Shaw, and on my Intuitive Connection podcast, I will share with you the ways to connect with your intuition and awaken the gifts of your soul. In each episode, I'll draw on my own intuitive gifts and my training as an Ivy League trained counselor and psychologist to help support you in reaching your highest potential. Start listening now on Mind Body Spirit FM Podcast Network or wherever you find your podcasts.